may remember uh, a Christian pianist named uh, Dino. Remember Dino? Well, you know, for years I really thought his last name was an Italian name at the piano. Because that's, that's, that's the only way I ever heard him introduce is Dino at the piano. And uh, his real name was Dino Karzanakis, but uh, so, you know, maybe we need to remember Larry as Larry at the piano, that old Italian guy. I'm going to tell you a little bit of story this morning. It began with a coded message, and the coded message read, expecting so many people that we have arranged 21 teacups and cooked 18 bowls of rice. This was a message to Christians in China in 1981. The 21 teacups meant 2,100 hours, or 9 p.m. The 18 bowls of rice meant that delivery would be on the 18th of November. The cargo that they were going to deliver was 1 million Chinese-language Bibles, weighing 232 tons. That's not something that's easy to sneak into a country that, especially at that time, rather frowned on things like that. This was called Project Pearl. Anybody ever hear that? Hear Project Pearl? Well, we have a well-informed congregation. A group teamed up with Brother Andrew of Open Doors, who's preached from this pulpit a couple of times, and getting the Bibles ashore in the dark, some of those Bibles got wet, and eventually they dried out. Those became known as the wet Bibles as they were distributed. The Chinese authorities intercepted some of the other Bibles, and they threw them into latrines. And some of those were eventually retrieved by Chinese believers. They were washed, they were sprayed with perfume, and they later became known as the Perfume Bibles. Now today, you can purchase Bibles in China at registered churches if you want, but that wasn't the case back then. Followers of Christ in China then, and probably some even still today who don't want to buy them at registered churches, They were willing to go to extraordinary means and to risk their freedom to obtain copies of the Word of God. Malcolm Muggridge once said, the truth is that the light which shines in this incredible book simply cannot be put out. When Open Doors engineered Project Pearl, putting a Bible into the hands of a Chinese Christian was like giving him a block of gold the same size. That's how valuable this was. What kind of power must a book have to cause people to risk their lives to get it? It's the kind of power that should cause us to tremble. We see in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. It's not something we hear about the word of God very often, trembling at the word of God. Why should we tremble? Bishop Anguko even referenced this idea last week when he spoke. We see this phrase in a few places in the Old Testament, the idea that believers tremble at God's word. We even see that used, the word tremble used. It's similar to what we see In Psalm 119, verse 161, where it says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Essentially, this isn't unlike the idea that we see so often in Scripture of the fear of the Lord. 
When we fear the Lord or when we tremble at his word, we're acknowledging and recognizing his power and authority. In Isaiah, we see the Lord speaking in the passage we just read. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being. This is the creator of all things. What power? What authority? When we tremble at his word, we're acknowledging his holiness. We're recognizing his omnipotence. Think about this. We call this book what? The Word of God. Now, most of it, most of you have Bibles, and it says Holy Bible. That tells us something, too. But we call this book the Word of God. Doesn't that very idea make you tremble just a little bit? We kind of think of that a little bit lightly. We casually toss around the phrase, the Word of God. But that this book contains the very words of the one who made us all. The one who literally spoke the universe into existence. So it's not just his wrath, which is written about in this book, that should make us tremble. It's not just the reality that Scripture presents that he's a holy God and that he will judge sin. That should make us tremble too. But you know what? It makes me tremble to consider that the maker of the universe knows me. It makes me tremble that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Almighty One, has such grace and mercy, such love for you and for me, that He sent His one and only Son to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay that awful price. As the old hymn says, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. So when we tremble at His Word, one of the realities that we're trembling at is what His Word reveals about Him. It reveals enough about Him, it teaches us enough about Him, that God uses His Word literally to change lives and cause some people to sacrifice much just to gain access to His Word, as in the story we heard at the beginning. And we could multiply that story by thousands of times today in our world, across the globe, and across the centuries. Contrast that almost desperate hunger to have access to the Word of God. Contrast that which causes people to go to extraordinary means to make it available or to get it for themselves. Contrast that with the abundance of Bibles that we have. How many Bibles do you own? Has anybody ever counted to figure out how many you have in your house? Well, I did that this week. I have 21 in my house. And that one doesn't, that doesn't even include the half dozen or so that I have in my office here at the church. And it doesn't include the two, ironically, Chinese Bibles that I have in my office. I have two Chinese Bibles. How many Chinese don't have any? I can't even read this thing. Isn't that ironic? Now, there's nothing wrong with having several Bibles in your home. Different translations can help us in understanding. Some Bibles have study helps that others don't. The problem is having, in having a lot is when we don't read any of them. There have been many studies showing how our Bible-rich nation of Christians is not using what God has so wonderfully provided in His Word. One survey was actually quite embarrassing. Among Christians surveyed, 22% thought there was actually a book of Thomas in the Bible. 
only 61% knew that Jonah is, in fact, a book in the Bible. Almost a quarter of those Christians surveyed, and we're talking about Christians in this survey, they either thought the book of Isaiah we read from just a moment ago, they thought it was in the New Testament, or they just didn't know where it could be found in the Bible. How about this finding? Only 36% of Christians knew that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is not in the Bible. Matter of fact, if you think about it, it is as unbiblical as almost any phrase you can think of. There's only one reason for statistics like these. People don't read their Bibles. So those studies have shown that more than 9 out of 10 Americans have at least one Bible in their home, and most own more than one, like me. Yet these same studies have shown that half of all Americans don't read the Bible at all. More than half of born-again Christians read the Bible only once or twice a week, or not at all. Less than 2 out of 10 Christians read the Bible every day. These are embarrassing numbers. They're embarrassing statistics. I can look at numbers like these and shake my head and say, boy, I'm sure glad we're not like that. Or are we? I would guess that if I did a survey at TCF and could get some honest answers, don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here this morning, my guess is that we'd really do much better than the national averages. I really think we would. I know many of you here have great devotional habits, and I know that your regular Bible readers. But even if we at TCF did twice as well, if we did twice as well as the national averages in these studies, that means that one out of every four TCFers don't read their Bibles more than once or twice a week or not at all. Before we continue, let me be clear about one thing. There's nothing about reading our Bibles that earns us anything with God. Yes, He uses His Word to bless us. He uses His Word to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to speak to us, as we'll see clearly this morning. If we never read His Word, we do miss out on a lot. But it doesn't affect our salvation, and it doesn't make Him not love us. So at the outset, let's dispense with the idea of reading God's Word as a duty. Let's do away with this idea of our Bible reading as an obligation. However, just because it doesn't earn us anything, just because it shouldn't be viewed as an obligation, doesn't mean that it's not important. And it doesn't mean that we needn't make an effort to consume these very life-giving words on a regular basis. Reading God's Word doesn't earn us anything, but it still has tremendous value. For centuries, the church has seen the critical importance of the Bible in the lives of everyday Christians. Let me read a section of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This was written in 1646. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto the church, and afterwards for their better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh 
and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. So can you sort through that old English and understand the importance that even the church in the 1600s understood the Word of God to be. The Bible itself speaks of its own usefulness and purpose in the life of a believer. Most, perhaps most familiarly, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, we're going to read, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One thing we note in this passage is that the Scriptures point to Jesus. It says here, makes us wise for salvation. The Scriptures make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. You add to this the idea that the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He's the embodiment of the Word. Jesus is the living Word. This Bible is a living Word too, in a different way. But it's written down for us as a permanent, never-changing record of God's redemptive plan and purposes for us. John tells us in 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So Jesus is the Word made flesh. He's the Word of life. And the Bible, this Bible, is the Word of life too. We see these phrases used interchangeably of Jesus as well as the written Word. It's the Word of life first because it's God-breathed, as we saw in the passage just a moment ago in uh, 2 Timothy. Some of your versions say inspired. Breathed out by God translates a Greek word, that does not occur in any other Greek text prior to this letter. Some therefore suggest that Paul coined this term from words meaning God and breathe, which is certainly possible. The term stresses the divine origin and thus the authority of Scripture. Paul does not point to the human authors of Scripture as inspired people, but says that the writings themselves, this is important, the writings themselves are the words spoken or breathed out by God. Again, here's something that if it doesn't, ought to make you tremble. These are the very words of God. Just as much as if God Himself or Jesus in the flesh was here speaking them audibly to us. And I'm not just talking about your red letter editions, those words that are in red letters in some of your Bibles. This is Scripture's testimony to us about its power and its authority. Because this is a word that's authored by God, because it points to Jesus, it has authority in the life of a Christian. This is a huge challenge in the church today. 
we have a segment of the church that's essentially denying that anything is authoritative. There's one book about the movement called The Emergent Church that tells us this. The emergent agnosticism about truly knowing and understanding anything about God seems to be pious humility. It seems to honor God's immensity, but it actually undercuts His sovereign power. Postmoderns harbor such distrust for language and disbelieve God's ability to communicate truth to human minds that they effectively engage in what D.A. Carson calls the gagging of God. Yet, the God of the Bible is nothing if He is not a God who speaks to His people. To be sure, none of us has ever infinitely understood God in a nice, neat package of affirmations and denials, but we can know Him truly both personally and propositionally. God can speak. He can use human language to communicate truth about himself that is accurate and knowable without ceasing to be God because we've somehow got him all figured out. There are many other things vying for authority in our lives. Who are you going to listen to is the question that we all have to face and we have to answer for ourselves? Are we going to listen to our culture? Are we going to listen to our own impressions or those of others? Or is the Word of God our final authority as the rule of faith in life or faith in practice, as some might put it? Is the Word of God the means by which we weigh every other claim to authority or truth? In Jude chapter 1, verse 3, we see this. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. The faith about which Jude wrote is contained in the Word of God. This is a crucial question for us. It will make a difference in how we respond to any and all challenges to our faith from outside the church, as well as the winds of doctrine that are always blowing inside the church. We all, therefore, have to face this ultimate and final question, writes D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Do we accept the Bible as the Word of God as the sole authority in all matters of faith and practice, or do we not? Is the whole of my thinking governed by Scripture, or do I come with my reason and pick and choose out of Scripture and sit in judgment upon it? putting myself and modern knowledge forward as the ultimate standard and authority. The issue is crystal clear. Do I accept Scripture as a revelation from God, or do I trust to speculation, human knowledge, human learning, human understanding, and human reasons? Or putting it still more simply, do I pin my faith to and subject all my thinking to what I read in the Bible? Or do I defer to modern knowledge, to modern learning, to what people think today, to what we know at this present time, which was not known in the past. It is inevitable that we occupy one or the other of these two positions. The position of the early church in the first centuries is that the Bible is the Word of God. Not that it contains it, but that it is the Word of God, uniquely inspired. So we must always ask the question, when faced with any question about our faith, what we believe, or when faced with any question about our practice, that's what we do. 
we have to ask the question, what does the Word tell us? What does the Word of God teach us? Paul told Timothy that the Word has a purpose. He wrote, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, of course, you might think, hey, I always rely on the Word, but what I think the Word means doesn't always match what others say the Word means. And that, of course, has been a challenge since the beginning of the church. That's way too big a question to answer in a Sunday morning service. But let me say that there are many sound, guiding principles that can help us rightly interpret the meaning of Scripture. And we can and we should learn these principles so that we are, as Paul encouraged Timothy just a chapter before the passage we just read, so that we are able to rightly divide or correctly handle the word of truth. This very passage tells us that there is a way to rightly or correctly understand Scripture and the corresponding reality that there is a wrong way to understand or interpret Scripture. But back to the main point. As followers of Christ, we need the word of life in our lives. We get it here on Sunday morning. If you attend a house church or basic, you probably get it on most Wednesday nights. But that's not enough. Group study is wonderful. But all by itself, it's no substitute for the regular reading of the Word of God as a part of God's molding and shaping influence in your own life. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, read this verse and it may make you tremble too. Who wants their thoughts and attitudes judged on a regular basis? Sounds painful, doesn't it? Sometimes it is. Especially with the analogy of a double-edged sword. Especially with the thought that that sword divides and penetrates. But it's a critical part of the process of God's sanctifying influence in our lives. Regular reading of the Word of God is the primary way He speaks to us. He speaks to us about who we are and what He desires that we would become. The Word of God then acts as God Himself so that one's innermost thoughts and intentions are exposed. This happens constantly in Christians' lives. It does happen constantly if you expose yourself to the regular influence of the Word of God. But it's not just about changing us. The Word's also about giving us hope. I think that's a primary reason believers in persecuted church countries go to such extraordinary means and are willing to risk so much just to get a copy of the Bible. Romans 15.4 tells us, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You know, there's probably no book or chapter in Scripture that speaks more eloquently or fully about God's Word than Psalm 119. While it uses different words throughout the course of the chapter to describe Scripture, they're all essentially synonyms for the Word of God. Here are just a few examples from Psalm 119, starting with verse 16. It says, I delight in your decrees, I will not neglect your word. 
Verse 25, I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. Verse 37, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. And verse 107, I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. So when we parallel these ideas that we see in Psalm 119 with the passage in 1 John that we just read, we see the psalmist clearly viewed the Word of God as life-giving. The Word of God is the Word of life. We have so much more of God's Word than this psalmist had. So much more is revealed about God and His character, His nature, His truth, His plan for our salvation in the additional scripture that we have. We have all that this psalmist had, plus much more. And what's more, we have experienced the living Word, Jesus, the Word made flesh. And yet, despite this, we still struggle sometimes in taking God's Word lightly. We often do not give it a primary place in our lives. We're ignorant of what it says, and this is a dangerous place to be because scripture notes in 1 John chapter 2, Verses 3 through 6, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. This very strong... This very direct passage begs a couple of questions, at least when I read it, it does. First of all, how can we obey His commands if we don't know them and we don't understand them? How can we live in Him and walk as Jesus did if we ignore or forget His Word? Back to Psalm 119, verse 16, we read a moment ago, says, I will not forget, the NIV says neglect, I will not forget or neglect your Word. We read all the statistics about how poorly Christians do in their Bible reading. So obviously we must respond. But it's God's Word that does the convicting, the judging. And as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 notes, the correcting and the training in righteousness. In fact, you know, that's sometimes where the problem comes in. There may be some of this at work. We don't read the Word because we don't like what we see. Not so much in the Word, but in us. It reveals too much. It convicts too much. It shows us too much of what we're really like. Now, it doesn't leave us there, thank God. God's Word also shows us what we can become through God's grace in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But sometimes we don't allow ourselves to get far enough to see that because it's so hard to see and admit what we really are. Someone once said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Can anybody here relate to that? Some of you may remember Marla Maples. She was the other woman in the Donald Trump affair. And she spoke in an interview once about her religious roots. She said she believed the Bible But then she added the disclaimer, but you can't always take it literally and be happy. Isn't that the truth? 
Consider this, the Word of God may at various times bring us joy. It may bring us peace. It may bring us hope. But the primary purpose of God's Word is not to make us happy. I'm sorry to tell you that here this morning. It's to make us holy. It's to make us holy. Andrew Murray wrote that the first need for Bible study is a great hunger after righteousness, a desire to do God's will in all things. How do we accomplish this? How do we get there? The more we feed ourselves on the bread of life, the more we hunger. The Word is called several things in Scripture. It's called our milk in 1 Peter 2.2. It's called our bread in John chapter 6, verse 51. It's called our meat in Hebrews 5.12-14. And it's called honey in Psalm 19, verse 10. Do you get the connection there? Is there a connection between food and the Word? Why is that? It's our sustenance. It's our sustenance. It's our life. It keeps our spiritual lives going. It keeps us alive. The Word gets better tasting the more we eat. You may have heard me say this before, too. It's the Lay's potato chip principle. Bet you can't eat just one. Now, a lot of you are too young to remember that reference, but it was a very popular ad campaign years ago. Lay's potato chips can't eat just one. The more we partake of the life-giving Word of God, the more enjoyable and richer it becomes to our souls. The reverse is true. The less we partake of the Word, the less we desire it. You might have also heard this about famine relief workers. It's surprising for workers in a place where there's been a famine for a long time to discover that having nothing in their stomachs for so many days, the victims of the famine felt no hunger. They felt no hunger. They had actually passed the stage of desiring food. This is a picture of many Christians. The Bible doesn't appeal to them anymore because they have gone without its nourishment for so long. Of course, there's also a need for diligence. We looked a moment ago at the passage from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. The word workman here implies what? Work. Diligence implies discipline, study, commitment, sacrifice. We can't be microwave Christians. We live in a microwave culture. We want everything like that. We can't be microwave Christians. I guess one-minute Bibles are better than nothing but not much. And I'm not saying that you have to read a couple of hours a day, although that's probably not a bad idea either. George Mueller, we've heard about him from this pulpit as well. He wrote a little book called A Narrative of Some of the Lord's Dealings with George Mueller. Don't you love that title? In that, he wrote this. It's a common temptation of Satan to make us give up reading of the Word and prayer when our enjoyment is gone as if it were of no use to read the Scriptures when we do not enjoy them, and as if it were no use to pray when we have no spirit of prayer. The truth is that in order to enjoy the Word, we ought to continue to read it. And the way to obtain a spirit of prayer is to continue praying. The less we read the Word of God, the less we desire to read it, and the less we pray, the less we desire to pray. The important thing is giving God time 
and regularity in whatever devotion He gives us. Whatever time of day or method we choose, we must make the Word a priority in our lives. You know, we're really good at making excuses. And I remember so many times having heard from this pulpit and from other places, you know, give God your best hours at the beginning of the day, etc., etc., and I'm all for that. But boy, that just didn't work for me. I would wake up and I would just kind of wearily kind of try to read the Word and pray and I wasn't going anywhere. It was very freeing to me when I discovered that midday I could take a break in the midst of my work schedule and I could have time in the Word then and that God was okay with that too. So I'm not encouraging anybody who does your, a really solid morning devotional time, that's good. Keep doing it. But if that doesn't work for you, don't give up. Don't say, well, I can't do it in the morning, I can't do it at all. We're good at making excuses. Now you say, well, gee, I don't have time. Nonsense. Nonsense. We have time and we make time for what we feel is important and what we enjoy. We have time for what we want to do. To say I don't have time is to say, in the day-to-day of my life, it's just not important enough. Do you want to be really saying that to God? The God who wants to speak to you using His Word? The supreme revelation of God, far greater than the revelation of Himself in nature, history, or providence, is found in the sacred Scriptures. Without the revelation contained in the Bible, we would be ignorant of God, His nature, will, plans, purpose, of Christ and the great doctrines of our salvation, of the Holy Spirit and His wonderful ministrations toward believers in Christ, and of our future destiny in the great eternity. At the foundation of all our spiritual knowledge, then, lies the Word of God. While we can be clear that the Bible doesn't contain everything there is to know. The Bible doesn't. It doesn't contain everything there is to know. We can say with confidence that it tells us everything we need to know about our life of faith and about God. It's the foundation. It's the foundation. It's the rock on which we must build our Christian lives. And to build on something else, which is effectively what we do when we don't regularly partake of the word of life, To build on something else is just like what Jesus talked about in his parable of building our houses on sand. Amen? The Bible is a God-given guide to sinners for their salvation and for the life of grateful godliness to which salvation calls them. The Bible is equally the church's handbook for worship and service. It is a divinely inspired unity of narrative and associated admonition a kind of running commentary on the progress of God's kingdom plan up to the establishing of a world-embracing, witnessing, suffering church in the decades following Christ's ascension and the Pentecost outpouring of the Spirit. And the incarnate Son of God Himself, Jesus the Christ, crucified, risen, glorified, ministering and coming again, is the Bible's central focus. While the activities of God's covenant people, both before and after Christ's appearing, make up its ongoing story. What an amazing gift we have in the Word of God. What an amazing gift we have in the Word of God. What will we decide to do with this gift? 
today and always. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. I'm going to play a song here as we close. I'm going to pray and then we'll play this song and I want you to respond as the Lord would have you respond. If he has convicted you in any way, I want you to respond. You can stay at your seat. You can come to the stage and just pray and seek the Lord. The song's about five minutes and that's the only time we'll have for a response. So don't delay if the Lord is convicting you to come. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is indeed living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that it penetrates, that it exposes the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. We thank you, Father, that it is our rule for faith and practice. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to be diligent. You'd help us to be diligent, even as your word admonished us, in accurately handling the word of truth. Lord, that we would consume regularly your words of life, that you have so wonderfully provided for us in the Word of God. We are grateful, Lord. We are a grateful people. We pray, Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are really good at finding time to read God's Word. I pray that you'd energize their Scripture study. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would reveal yourself to them in fresh ways each and every day, Father God. And Lord, I pray for those who struggle. I pray for those who struggle with regularity. I pray for those who struggle with time. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring to them your energy, your ability, Father God, your grace, enabling them to drink deeply of the word of life, even as we tremble at the word of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. stars in the heavens Have you walked the circumference of the earth Have you measured the boundaries of the universe Do you tremble at the word of God Have you uncovered the source of the thunder Have you tamed the crashing mighty Have you defied the force of gravity Do you tremble at the word of God The wise will hear and obey you upon the earth The fool will perish in the folly of his ways Do you tremble at the word of God The 
scope of eternity in the light of unwavering truth. If you regarded the works of the strong in mighty hands, do you tremble at the word of God? The wise will hear and obey his word. Let's stand.